I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, folks. Uh, Before we throw it to this week's episode, just a quick little announcement. Uh, The team here over at Sick Boy Podcast are looking for your quarantine stories. So if you have a creative, cool, or unusual quarantine story to share, we would love to hear it. Um, Any perils of wisdom that we could learn from you, uh, we're looking for it. If you have something interesting to share with us, uh, head on over to our Instagram and click the link in our bio, and you'll find a little form a little survey there you can fill out. Um, And if we come across something that's uh, really, you know, kind of tickles our fancy, uh, there's a good chance that it will be featured on a Feel Good Friday episode. So uh, again, if you have anything that you'd like to share, crazy, unusual, cool, interesting stories about your time in quarantine, let us know. Uh, You can also check the link in the the description of this episode. Okay, uh, we're going to throw into this week's episode with Keith. Uh, Keith is the host of a new CBC podcast called Unlocking Bryson's Brain, and uh, it's about his son, Bryson, who is living with a neurodevelopmental disorder. And uh, Keith's an amazing guest. We had a really great time with him, and we're, we're very stoked for you to hear it. Um, and uh, I, guess, I guess that's it. Um, uh, to all of our patrons, uh, can't wait to see you on Wednesday for our weekly uh, hangout on Discord. Um, and if you're, if you're, I hope you, you know, I hope you're having a good time. I hope you're all doing well out there. Uh, don't touch your eyeballs and uh, wash your hands and love your neighbor. Okay. See you all on the other side. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Keith MacArthur. He's the father and caretaker of his son, Bryson, who lives with Grin One, a neurodevelopmental disorder. Let's talk about it. And away we go. Uh, hi, Keith. How you doing? I'm good. Good. Good to be here. Yeah, nice, nice to have you here. Um, Keith, you are, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're a rare disease dad, and uh, you are the host of the new CBC podcast, Unlocking Bryson's Brain, which is available now uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, the first two episodes dropped, and I got to say, it is... Um, Bit of a tearjerker. Sh- yeah, holy shit. I, I, I just, I just want to I want to start by saying I know that this podcast is mostly about Bryson, but uh, your son, Connor, for 16 years old, like... That is the most intelligent, well-spoken sixteen-year-old kid I've ever heard talk in my entire life. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a he's a great kid. He's a great kid. <laughs> he's he's a very charming character. Yeah, um, the podcast. Well, why don't you lay out the podcast for our listeners um, who 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 likely haven't heard it yet, um, as the podcast is so new. Yeah. So my son Bryson, when he was born in uh, two thousand and six, he seemed 
to be just like a, a typical kid. It seemed like a, a normal birth. Um, then when he was about five weeks old, we took him in for baby pictures. And you know, there's that kind of classic shot that the photographers like to do where they try to get the kids um, to prop up their heads on their fists. Well, when he tried to do that with Bryson, Bryson's head kept falling over and the photographer was getting frustrated by it. And so that was kind of the first clue that something was different with Bryson. And then the next couple of weeks after that, we noticed that, yeah, his head was kind of floppier than it had been with Connor, our first son. And then before long, doctors confirmed our fears that, yeah, there was something different with, with Bryson. And it actually took us 10 years to find out what he had, what the diagnosis was. And so Unlocking Bryson's Brain is an eight-part you know, documentary-style podcast about first, you know, about Bryson, about his life, but also about our search for a diagnosis and then a search for therapies or a cure. Mm. It, one, one, of the, one of the ways you described it uh, early on in the show was, was that this was a, a father's memoir, um, and, and it, it really is like, it is, it, it, it feels like we are peering into your life in a very intimate way, which, which as a listener, you most certainly are. Um, uh, I, I mean, I don't like, are we, are we spoiling it? <laughs> like, would it be a spoiler if we, we said like what, what you found out so far? Cause like when the, when the podcast starts, it's, it's, it's early days. Like when your wife, um, your wife, Laura, uh, yeah, yeah. is pre- is pregnant um and then by the end of that episode um uh we find out that Bryson who today is uh 13 years old He's 13 yeah so so have you have you uh where have you found out what what is wrong with Bryson or have you unlocked what's going on with Bryson's brain we have yeah so i mean um you know kind of chasing what the diagnosis is takes up a lot of the the first uh episode and then mm-hmm. At the you know kind of we, th- at the end of the, the first episode, um, we learned that doctors have found out what it is, and um, it's a rare disease called Grin disorder. So, of the six point four billion genes that we all have in our DNA, um, one or six point four letters that we all have, sorry, in our DNA, one of those letters for Bryson has a spelling mistake, and so that spelling hmm. mistake changes this Grin one gene. And as a result, his whole existence has changed. He has trouble, um, you know, with learning and memory. His, even though he's 13, his brain is kind of locked at the level of a one-year-old. And so, so much of the podcast after we get that diagnosis is trying to figure out, um, to learn more about what is this grin disorder and then to try and figure out, you know, how, how to unlock Bryson's brain. Is there a way to help him to be able to, um, communicate and express when he's in pain, um, be able to get around by himself right now he's you know in a wheelchair that we have to push we'd love it if he could be able to move his own wheelchair or you know even to walk so those are those are some mm. of the things that we're hoping for i was curious to hear more about that because um about almost like what your expectations were in doing this if you had any at all because at the end of the first episode you introduce um carly who is the daughter of a, a gentleman that you knew who had uh, a severe case of autism. And you talked about how there was this uh, story that came out about her where she was able to actually um, write down her thoughts that were in her head and articulate them through like a computer or device or, or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, people who thought that she might not be able to communicate or understand the world around her were um, all of a sudden like 
opened to this reality that she she did in fact understand what was going uh, going on around her. So I was I was curious in in starting this journey yourself. Um, did you have any hopes or expectations for what you would be able to unlock for Bryson? Yeah, honestly, my expectations change every day, just depending on who I mm. talk to and what the science is. So I'll go through days where, you know, it really feels like there's, I'm talking to scientists who are sure that there will be cures or therapies that are going to make a profound difference in Bryson's life. And then I'll talk to others who say, you know, that's, that's 30 or 40 years away. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of ups and downs, but, um, as, but as I've gone along, I'm, I'm certainly getting more and more hopeful. Like we are at this amazing point of medical science where I think it's quite reasonable to think that over the next few decades, uh, that lots of diseases that we thought of as uncurable are going to find cures. Mm. And, you know, there's examples of that already with um, spinal muscular atrophy, right, which is this this disease that can kill babies. And now there's at least two therapies approved by the FDA that are helping kids to, to live longer lives and helping them to be able to, uh, to, to move around and, and, and walk, um, which they, they couldn't have done otherwise. So uh, yeah, th- it is just like an amazing time for this. There was, um, there was a, uh, there's many things that I was struck by, um, in listening, uh, to the podcast, one of them. And, and one of the reasons why I think, uh, why it's so, why it's so fitting to, to do, to have you on, on our, sh- on our show and, to, and how our show is like really, um, complement each other really well is, um, when you were talking about rare diseases and oh, how, dude, I know exactly yeah. what you're going to refer to. Yeah. How, yeah, how too. it's actually how rare diseases aren't so rare. And, mm-hmm. and it would actually, you would actually be an outlier if you didn't know somebody in your extended family or in your circles, um, that you, uh, that you operate within. If you didn't know somebody that had, um, a rare disease. Yeah, I think and, specifically you you said one in twelve Canadians yeah. mm-hmm. have have a rare disease, I, which is something I didn't realize. Yeah, and that number that number is staggering. Like that, you also said that it's a similar number to the amount of people in Canada who are left handed. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like that yeah. is that is fucking astounding. Which yeah. which being left handed may in fact be a rare disease in itself. You know? <laughs> okay, Brian. Brian, yeah, Brian are you left handed? No, my identical twin brother is though. So uh, <laughs> so I feel like it's fair for me to say that. <laughs> I mean it, it is a, it is just a really um it is a really eye opening especially I mean I mean I guess it almost it, it almost contradicts itself, right? That that a rare disease that one in twelve people have a rare disease. You know it's mm. um and, and something that we've often talked about, um, on the show and, um, and I, I, you know, I'm not really familiar, very familiar with, um, um, sorry, what is it again? Grin, 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 grin disorder, grin yeah. disorder. Is it, um, is it, it's type one, right? There's different types of grin. Yeah. So there's actually seven different genes that code this part of the brain called the NMDA receptor. Uh, and that the NMDA receptor is, it plays a big role in learning and memory. So it lives on the neurons. Um, and there are seven Grin genes. So one of them is, is Grin one. There's also at least three others that cause disease when there's variants in them. So Grin two, a Grin two B and Grin two D are the three okay. other genes. Yeah. So some, something that, that we talk about a lot when we talk to somebody who has a, I guess what's coming up for me in this is that rare conditions in general are not rare because there's so there can be so many rare conditions but when somebody has a rare condition that individual rare condition it can be tough for there to be treatment and funding for that to be for that rare 
thing because it is rare and because there isn't, you know, it's not like a cancer where, you know, half or a third of the population is affected by that one thing where you have cancer societies that raise, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars for research. Um, you know, you find these rare diseases where it can be really challenging to get funding. Um, I'm assuming grins, grin probably falls into that, into that category where, or does it where there's, it's really challenging for there to be funding and research? It, it does. Yeah. And and one of the things that I talk about as I go along with this is, you know, I kind of started out on this journey looking for a cure for Bryson, but also just getting the diagnosis came in touch with so many different families all around the world. So I co-founded a charity with another Grin mom in Colorado. So it's called Cure Grin um, at curegrin.org. And um, we you know, basically have, have been around for less than a year, but have been actively trying to fundraise. And, and so far, the biggest way that we've been able to fundraise is just through Grin families. So we did this campaign where we enlisted 100 Grin families and got them each to kind of go to their you know, contacts of families and friends and, and try and raise money. So, um, you know, and, and it costs hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to find a cure. So it's a big wow. uh, uphill battle in terms of the fundraising. So I was just going to ask, have you been able to speak and connect with many Grin families considering it is a, a rare disease or disorder? Yeah, we, we have actually. So um, there's probably, so th- there's an estimate that there's between five and 10,000 people in the United States with Grin disorder. Um, uh, there's a, but, but the thing about it is that most people haven't been diagnosed with it. So, you know, there's maybe a thousand people in the world who have been diagnosed and just through social media. And, you know, we have a number of different groups there, one about research, one, just a parent support and a couple different parent support groups. Um, through that, I've met, I would say hundreds of families from around the world. What is, what is the process to get diagnosed? So it's whole exome sequencing. So, you know, in, I think episode one, go, I go through a lot of the, uh, challenges that we faced and Bryson got so many different individual blood tests and a muscle biopsy and MRIs. Um, and and all these things kind of came back negative. They couldn't really find what it was. Uh, but then eventually, um, this, uh, geneticist in Toronto, Dr. Ronnie Cohn, he, uh, got a whole exome sequencing for Bryson, which is basically where, you know, they look at, at, uh, almost every, well, it's every gene that codes a protein in the body. Uh, and so it's about 1% of the overall DNA. And then they compare that to mine and to Laura's. And through that, they were able to find, you know, in the 6.4 billion letters, one that was different for Bryson in the Grin one gene. And that's how they wow. figured out that that's what he wow. had. Wow. I, I, this is, um, you know, speaking about the, the, uh, organization that you, you founded, uh, Cure Grin. Um, I think this is a really good opportunity to throw to a clip to, um, to, uh, a little, a little snippet of the show. Um, uh, let's, let's throw to that right now. And then, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about that after. What's amazing to me is that yes, Scientists played an enormous role in curing this disease. But so did parents. And almost every disease that's been cured over the past 20 years has been driven by patients or parents raising money, sponsoring research, connecting scientists, and nagging the hell out of anyone who will listen. About four years ago, I got asked to see a little girl at a hospital in London uh, who develops quite early newborn epilepsy and I I went to see the family as a favour it turned out that her maternal aunt 
was a geneticist and did arrange to do exome sequencing. That baby had a has a has a genetic disorder at that time thought to be incredibly rare, um, and. That family started a foundation, and three years later, there are ten compounds in clinical trials for that for that condition. Wow. So, I am always amazed about what the power of patient patient families can actually accomplish, um, because of course, it's top of mind every single moment of the day for them, you know, and uh, that just that focus and drive. It's an incredible multiplier, actually, for to to you know to get, to get drug development activities off the ground. So what you what you just heard there was um, uh, that other character was Dr. Omar Kawaja, uh, who is the chief medical officer at Voyager Therapeutics, which is a a Boston-based gene therapy company. Um, and that 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 clip, so like. A big th- conversation piece that we have on this show quite quite often, and you know, it's something that that the three of us have have talked about a, quite a, quite a lot at different um, speaking opportunities. Is the importance of patient advocacy, or patients feeling like they have a voice, and this idea of patient advocacy, like that clip, does such a perfect job of 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 showcasing why patient advocacy is so vitally important you know like it, it's it's one thing to talk about it but then to hear to hear to hear you say how a lot of these diseases that are being cured are being cured because of the the family members you know the parents of the children that are suffering from these diseases and the parents that are going all right well we're not going to stand by and and be idle to this like we we need to make a change yeah, that that's so true. And, you know, every I would say without an exception, almost every scientist that I spoke to um, that's involved in at, at a biotech company or, or involved in curing rare disease research talked about that, how critical it is to have active an active patient or a parent population. And um, so so Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is the charity that Mark Zuckerberg and his wife Priscilla Chan founded, um, they've made it their mission, they say, by the end of the century to cure uh, or find a, a, a therapy or cure for every disease. And one of the ways that they're doing that is to kind of bolster these rare disease foundations. So wow. um, they launched this program called Rare as One, and there were 30 groups that were part of the launch, and, and we were lucky enough to be chosen as one of those groups. So so they're giving us like a lot of support and training um, just to be able to help us to do that, which is fantastic. Wow. Holy smokes! It's it it you know the one of the things that kind of struck me about that that clip was that that number seven hundred thousand um, dollars in treatment expenses in one year, um, mm. and and talking about the importance of the the role of the patient advocate and how sometimes even through that advocacy they end up incurring these incredible expenses just to get access to those drugs, let alone even if they're able to get access to it. Um, Jerry, I know with, with your CF, you can't even get Trikafta right now. And yeah. in the States, that's a $300,000 a year drug as well. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's some, it, it was disheartening for me to hear that because it feels like even though, you know, there is hope in the work that the patients do in their advocacy that in the end, they still may face, you know, barriers to accessing the, the, the cure just by nature of how 
the structures of of companies and our healthcare system um, is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely true. And I mean, hopefully we'll get to the point where governments in Canada, insurance companies in the States, where if there are these kind of really expensive uh, drugs that you take either once a year or there's, you know, there's another SMA therapy that's more recently been approved where it's like a one-time thing that's supposed to help you for the rest of your life. Hopefully they'll, they'll kind of do the math and realize that the cost of all of the drugs that you're taking every day um, versus like 1.3 million one time that, that it might actually be in their benefit to, to make that investment up front. Yeah. That's always kind of been, that's always been my exact trade of thought with, uh, I mean, specifically when we were talking about Trikafta is like, you know, does it cost more to fund the drug that's going to, you know, stop the CF from progressing or for, you know, Jer to take the thousand pills and all the stuff every day? I mean, like Mm -hmm. what, what is that? What is that math? It seems like, you know, for the people that know how to do it, it would be a pretty simple equation and we'd have an answer, but I don't know, you know. I I, uh, I want to take some time to kind of dive into life as a caretaker. Um, uh, you know, obviously, it, one of the early things that you you talk about in the first episode there is is how um, when your when your wife Laura was pregnant, um, you would have people say, "Is a is a boy or a girl?" And your response to that was, um, uh, I, are, are you hoping for a boy or a girl? And your response to that was, I, I don't really care just as long as it's a healthy baby. And, and then it's, soon it's kind realize, of a cliche, right? Like everybody, everybody's supposed to say that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then suddenly realizing one day that, you know, you, you don't necessarily have quote unquote a healthy baby. Um, and I'm sure your life, you know, when you guys figured out that, that around that time where Bryson's head was a little too floppy and, and, and the eyes weren't quite tracking the way that you were expecting him to, um, that your lives kind of got flipped on, on top of their heads. Um, what, what, like how had your life changed? Um, this is probably a huge broad question, but like how has your life changed since those, those early days when realizing that there was something wrong with Bryson's brain? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been so many different changes, but in the early days, I think that Laura and I reacted to it differently. So I was at work, I was working full time and Laura hadn't you know, gone back to work yet after, after Connor. Um, and so she was at home with Bryson and because, you know, he, he had this condition, there were so many different doctor's appointments and different clinics. So she was spending so much time, um, bringing not just this newborn baby, but another like two and a half year old with her to all these appointments. Um, And so I think she understood earlier than I did that this was a serious and permanent thing um, and kind of got to this point and I got to it later, but she got to this point early where uh, she was in this period of mourning, right? For this kid that she thought we were going to have, um, but, but didn't have, right? We have, you have all these dreams of, of your kid and your quote unquote normal family. And uh, it's a big blow to realize that that's not your, that's not what your life is going to be. Um, and I got that kind of later on. I, for early on, I was like, no, no, he'll grow out of this. He'll be fine. Um, but eventually I came to that kind of same place, but then over time we got to this place where, you know, even though we know Bryson's life is hard and we wouldn't wish what he's going through on to anyone and he shouldn't have to suffer. We're, we're grateful for having him in our lives. Um, and you know, wouldn't want, any other kid. So, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a great thing to come to a place where you realize that it's okay to still mourn the quote unquote perfect family that you thought you were going to have, but also be um, so grateful and so in love with this kid that you have instead. Mm. What, what does caring for um, a patient with, with, uh, with, grin type one is it does does he specifically have grim type one i don't want to i don't want to say grin type one if, if it's like i feel like i'm 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 just like i'm throwing something out there that's not even true is it grin type one that it's, that bryson has or it's just uh, grin it's, it's grin disorder grin disorder the variants in the grin in the grin one gene I, I don't know it's like such a rare disease that we're still kind of making <laughs> you're up still trying to figure it out <laughs> like so for so long we just called it grin one like when we found other sure. families that's what they were calling it so we called it that and then and then we realized, and so we kind of grouped all together into this like cluster on Facebook of Grin One families. And then we realized that there were uh, all these other Grin families as well with very similar mm. conditions. So then, then we came together. But in terms of caring uh, for Bryson, I mean, you know, it's it's a full time thing. He needs twenty four seven support. We're lucky because um, we have this kind of tent bed that he can sleep in and he stays safe. Otherwise, if he was just in like a regular bed, he would you know, fall out and, and hurt himself. Um, cause he's, what quite, do you mean by tent, tent bed? Like a, like, like a bed that has a bed. What's yeah, a tent bed? So, so he's like, <laughs> it's, like a, it's got a, like a fully, that's a good question. It's like a fully normal, uh, bed frame. And yeah. then it, um, has this kind of, it's, it's almost like a tent, but it has this, you, you actually slip a regular mattress into the bottom of it. So he's all protected ah. on the sides and the top. Um, and you know, it, it's, it's mesh so we can see in and out and he can, he can see out. Um, but it, but it keeps him safe at night. So, um, we actually have two because we have another one that we take with us when we, when we travel. Right. I thought yeah. you were going to say you had two and you had one in your room because you just realized how cool <laughs> it was when he had one. You were like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> we actually keep the other one set up, uh, in the living room, uh, so that, because he also has these like kind of violent, um, seizure like episodes when he's having a tough day, like he happens to be having today. We sometimes, uh, need to put him in there. Mm. So, so you've got the tent bed. What, what, what else, like on a day to day basis, like, what does it, what does it look like? You know, um, I, I know that you, you, you mentioned that he, I don't know if you mentioned it here, if it was in the podcast, it's all, it's all blending together now, but that he, he's, uh, he uses a wheelchair, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, is this like a power chair that he has, he has an ability to, to control or is it like full on, you know, it's, it's a it's a manual chair that we use. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we'd, we'd love to get to the place where we can where he can can move it around by himself, but it's just not not there yet. Um, so yeah, he, he uses that chair. He's he goes to a, a regular. When, I mean, when we're not in, in lockdown, he goes to a regular uh, Toronto public school with uh, with other kids with with special needs with with uh, physical and, and uh, cognitive disabilities, um, and then. We also have uh, a caregiver who comes because my wife and I both work full time. She comes uh, and looks after him kind of from when he gets home from school till about seven every night. Um, and we also get here in Ontario seven hours of, of PSW support for Bryson. So a worker that comes um, every basically comes every morning and helps get him ready for school is how we use that. Oh, wow. So we we made a decision early on. Uh, that we didn't want anybody coming in during, you know, this coronavirus. Um, so now we're, we're kind of doing everything. Um, mm. 
but uh, yeah, so so we're we're lucky that we have you know these these supports that we do. Um, but on weekends when we're alone, it's it's really tough because you know it's it's almost like um, having a newborn because they need one parent with them all the time. Um, but he's also seventy five pounds, uh, so you know it involves like a lot of a lot of lifting him in and out of his chair and. Um, we, we put in a chairlift to make it easier to take him to his bedroom, but, uh, but it, but it's exhausting. And then he also can have, as I mentioned, these like violent episodes where he'll, um, bite himself and kick and scream. And, uh, we don't know why they, they come and go, but some days are just terrible. So, so, you know, I, I think I, I say at one point in the podcast that we, um, can kind of tell how hard a weekend it's been for him on Sunday night by how many bruises he has or we wow. have. Yeah. Something that's, something that's always really stuck out to me um, or something that really stuck in my head was something that Brian said to me uh, one time when he was talking to me about um, Brian does a lot of work with um, the uh, down syndrome community. And something that he said to me uh, uh, once was about a, um, a debate that I don't know where it was happening, whether it was on Twitter or Instagram or something, but somebody taking uh, contention with the use of the term special needs mm. um, and, uh, and what you said to me, Brian, was, was uh, that if you don't use a term um, like – I think the argument was something along the lines of like, you know, they're just like everybody else. Like don't, don't, don't single them out or group them into this category that um, deems them as special. And the counter argument to that was, well, if we don't use the term something like special needs, um, then, then we risk – we risk the funding and the social programs that go along, like something like like the program that he that Bryson uh, would be in at school. And if you don't if you don't sort of use that distinction, that there are there there are people and children and adults that have needs that are special in relation to the needs that I need or that you need, um, then. It, then you could risk like the fun, like funding disappearing for those things if you don't call attention to them in that way. I don't know if you want to speak to that anymore, Brian, but but I, I guess I guess what I'm really asking is is um, what do you what do you think about that as a as a parent as a parent who has a kid that that has needs that are that are obviously special and um, and needs that extra care. Yeah. So, I mean, interestingly, what, one thing that it reminded me of when you were saying that is that uh, there's at least one other grin disorder parent I know who's like, don't, we, sh- we shouldn't be calling it um, even special needs because this is like a serious disability. It, it, you know, he's, he's, he, his point is that this is special needs makes it sound uh, maybe uh, less serious than, he, than it is. Right. Um, mm. but, but certainly I can relate to what you're saying. And one <laughs> example is that, you know, Bryson's going into high school next year. And so for so long, his designation in the Toronto District School Board was just that he had this physical disability. But um, in term, in, in order to place him at the right high school, um, we agreed for the first time ever to do a, a psycho, like a psychology, psychological assessment mm-hmm. on him. And, you know, we'd kind of been resistant of that because we didn't want any labels put onto it. And um, but we had to do it because we wanted to make sure he was in you know the classroom with the right um, teacher to student ratio, but that was a tough experience. So we had to fill out these, um, forms with like, actually my my wife, Laura did it, but there were like, I don't know, 400 questions on the form. Like, can your child, um, 
you know, just, just all kinds of questions about, about whether your child can do these things that like none of them applied to Bryson. Like they were all, um, for people that were either typical or had very mild, uh, disabilities. So it was just like, no, 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 no. Um, all up and down the page. And then having that meeting where we got the results and they told us, no, his, his brain is around the level of a, a 12 month old. Um, it's, it's tough to hear. You, you say, you say a 12 month old, but like, like is, is that, I know it's complete speculation and like there's not there's really is no way for us to tell but like there there was a moment where you're talking with your son Connor who is who is Bryson's older brother by a few years yeah. and and you're you you go into discussing how like well Connor when you play with Bryson we can see him smile wider and and more brightly than than he does with other people and 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 you kind of, you know, you ask Connor what his thoughts are on that and, and if he if he notices that. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that you and your wife have like considered or thought about like, um, you know, what it can he understand the things that we're saying to him? Can he, you know, it, when he's when he's making this particular noise, um, uh, you know, when when we're about to feed him or when he's like done finished eating, you, you reference how he like covers his mouth. He doesn't want any more. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do you, do you, what do you think? Do you like, do you think that, do you think that he has the mental capacity of a 12 month old or do you, do you truly like in your heart of hearts feel that, that Bryson is, is, is a 13 year old boy just stuck in a, in a, in a body that's, that's unfortunately, you know, affected by, 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 um, by grin. No, I mean, I think that his, I think that his learning capacity is is severely impaired by the grin disorder, but at the same time, I do believe that he understands a lot more of what's going around him than he can communicate. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just one example is he had has so many appointments at the hospital for sick children, and um, we started to realize that as we were pulling into the parking lot, he would start to cry. And and oh. even just that, like, it, it's terrible for him, but it was actually like a, a kind of happy thing for us because we realized that he right. made that connection to his surroundings and knew that he had this appointment coming up. And, and another more positive example is, you know, for example, we, we can be driving in the car and one of us will make a joke um, and nobody else laughs, but Bryson laughs and we're like, oh, I guess he understood <laughs> what we were saying. That's I mean, it's it sounds, a, it's sounds beautiful... like when you make a joke, Brian, uh, on the podcast, no, no, nobody laughs. And then, but then you just laugh. You no, 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 the person listening laughs, but you guys don't laugh. Yeah, whatever, Brian, whatever. Um, I mean, I d- it's very, it's a very kind of beautiful thing in, in relation to, it's kind of like, it's kind of, it's kind of making this, dis- I, I, I start to think about it making the distinction between, like about his intellectual capacity versus his emotional capacity and that, and that there is, there is a, like a rich, um, uh, um, a rich capacity for, for emotion and to be able to, you know, the same way that we, I, I guess when you, when you walk into a room, when you walk into a room and it's filled with people that you, that you know, and you love and, and, and you, you, you have great memories with, that there's just something about that before anything is said, before anything is exchanged, before any eye contact is made. It's just 
there's just something, there's something in you. There's an emotion that comes and you, and you know that this is a, this is a good place to be. This is a, you know, like, and I think about that when you, when you referenced the interaction with Connor, Jeremy, that, you know, there's this, there's this richness to that relationship on this emotional level. That's, that's very beautiful. And, and regardless of whether the, what the intellectual, um, sort of communication ends up being, that emotional connection is there in like a really beautiful way. Well, Tilly, mm. you mentioned, you mentioned yeah, the, yeah. the yoga classes that I've been teaching. When I walk into that, that room um, to teach the yoga to the group with intellectual disabilities, like I, I've never felt more welcomed and comforted, even though they can't say, hey, welcome, Brian. It's so great to see you today. It's just that energy and mm. feeling and the emotion that they – they share with me. It's, it's, it's so heartwarming for me. Um, but just to come back to that thing that you were, when Taylor, when you brought that up, the conversation I was having about special needs, um, it was actually in relation to talking about, um, programs and, and assistance that's provided to, uh, um, special needs, quote unquote, uh, kids who are, who graduate from high school, because Mm -hmm. that sort of seems like, um, as far as our system goes, the end of the line for support and, and caregiving, unless you get access to some um, more private institutions. Um, is that something, Keith, that you've thought about or or that you've kind of, and it, with with uh, Bryson being 13, is that something that you're already thinking about or you have to plan for now? You know, we haven't thought about it a ton. I know it's something that we, we do have to start thinking about. I think in Ontario, uh, kids with this, special designation can go to high school until they're 21. So he's maybe got seven, seven years of high school, I think. Um, so yeah, we do have to start thinking about it certainly. Um, and this is something that I I talk about a lot actually in the very last episode of the podcast is, you know, because there's this possibility of cures and therapies, we almost have to plan for two different versions of Bryson's future. So one where, there is something that makes a huge change in his life and makes his life much easier and he can communicate and, you know, maybe even live on his own. And then this other version where he keeps progressing very slowly at his own pace, but may never be able to look after himself. And, and so, you know, we're, we're terrified of who's going to look after him when we're not around um, or, or just when we're you know too old to be able to, to lift him or, or all of that stuff. And so, um, we've kind of divided, divided that up where, um, I'm looking more into the kind of cure side of things. And Laura's, uh, looking more into, you know, she's actually working with friends on building, uh, a kind of special needs home where, uh, we know that Bryson could be safe in the future. So, so definitely the future is something that, uh, is scary to think about, but we know we have to face it. What, uh, this might be too personal of a question. If it is, you can tell me to fuck right off. But, uh, what is the, how has, has this taken a toll on your, your relationship with Laura? Hmm. You know, like, like what, what has, what has that looked like? Yeah, I don't, I think it's, um, I don't think it's taken a toll on a relationship. I, I know there's this, uh, there's this stat that gets thrown around that people who have kids with severe special needs are more likely to end up in divorce. And, and I was actually trying to chase that down for the podcast and any research uh, that's been done on it shows that that's not actually the case. Mm. I, I would say that for us in a lot of ways, it has made us stronger um, rather than, than hurting us. Um, we make sure that we, 
take time, uh, you know, to go on dates um, where we ask Bryson's caregiver to stay later so she can put him to bed mm-hmm. uh, and stay with him. Um, we make sure that we we take time with Connor. Um, so I've like taken him to other cities to see Blue Jays games away and uh, Laura takes him on ski trips. So, you know, we try as much as possible to have kind of a, a quote unquote normal um, family life. So, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's brought us together. I mean, I you know, if, if anything, the one point of tension is just that our time is just so constrained and. Um, you know, on, on the weekend, uh, like today I wanted to go for a run and, and anything like that is just always a negotiation, right? Cause it, it, we're right. talking on, a, um, on a hol- on a, cause we're talking on a, a holiday and, uh, so we don't have Edna here today. And so it's, it's always like, if I want to go for a run, I have to make sure that Laura is able to be with Bryson and vice versa. Sick boy podcast. We'll be right back after this very short break. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. So, Keith, when we started Sick Boy, we were fortunate enough to be part of a, a CBC documentary. And um, when I was working with the director, he was talking to me about um, <laughs> my mom's experience with cancer. And he was saying, like, you know, with Sick Boy, you're talking to people who live with illness and you're asking them tough questions. You're encouraging them to open up to their loved ones. Um, have you done that with your mom yet? And my answer was no, not yet. And so he kind of encouraged me to have this um, conversation with her like I was with the guests on Sick Boy. And through that experience, which was like creating a piece of art, it actually impacted my life in this really profound way. I had this super authentic and vulnerable conversation with my mom that I don't think I would have had otherwise. And um, I'm still feeling the ripple effects of that in my relationship with her now, like three years later, in such a positive way. Um, with your experience of of, of um, producing and recording Unlocking Bryson's Brain, what has your relationship been like with both Connor and Laura in having some of these more deep, open, vulnerable conversations with them about being the caretakers uh, in Bryson's life. Yeah. So the most profound example of that is in my conversations with Connor and, you know, asking him what he's most afraid of. Um, we had some some pretty tough conversations about the fact that he's worried that um, when Laura and I can't take care of Bryson anymore, that he's going to be stuck not only with like the physical job of caretaking, but also with the financial burden. And, you know, it, it was a big reminder to me that we need to talk to him a lot more about what our plans are. Right. So I think we were maybe trying to protect him and shelter him from the long term future planning. And, um, you know, we are, we do realize that, that it's going to be expensive for him to have the 24 seven support that he may need in the future. And, um, 
we just need to, to tell Connor more about what the plan is and get him involved more in the long-term planning because he's obviously going to have some kind of role in the future. Right. Uh, but has, has that played, has that played, I mean, obviously it's, it's very obvious in the conversation <clears throat> in the first episode, um, that you have with Connor that, uh, uh, he sounds well, what is he? He's 16 years old. Yeah. And he sounds well beyond, uh, the age of a 16 year old. Um, mm-hmm. he's, su- he's such a, like, he's such an adult. It's crazy. He's, he's so such well a well-spoken, spoken, charming yeah, adult. It's, it's very, um, it, it's very obvious as soon as when he came on the show, I was speaking. I was like, Oh, who's this doctor they're talking to? And then they're like, this, this is my, this is my 16 yeah. year old son. And I'm yeah. like, what the fuck? I mean, has how much of how, how much of, um, how much of, of, uh, Bryson having the condition that he has and all the the caretaking and I'm sure Connor's involved in that and has been involved in that in 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 some way for since forever. Um, how much of that do you think has has played a role in kind of who Connor has become over the years and and how and and how much of an adult he seems to, he he seems to carry himself as. Yeah, I'm sure it's played a role. I mean, I asked him that. Uh, I think it's in the first episode. And he says that he doesn't really think that this has all had an impact on his life because he says, you know, the fact that Laura and I spend time with him and give him a lot of attention to um, has uh, that, that we've been able to circumvent that. But, you know, obviously it's a big thing that that changes his life, right? Like, I, you know, there I think there are times where, he wasn't sure if he wanted to invite friends over because our home was different. His brother was different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now he's at the point where he wants his friends to come over and wants them to meet Bryson. So yeah, it does, it does change. Um, it's got to change it for a sibling. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, especially now that Bryson's uh, going to be a, you know, he's a, a celebrity. celebrity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I guess something that's, that that kind of follows that follows nicely on that is, is um, you, when you mentioned in the episode, in the first episode about, um, the question about Bryson's privacy and you telling Bryson's story mm. and, and mm-hmm. how, and how, you know, of course Bryson isn't, isn't capable of, of speaking his story. Um, and so that, and, and how does a cure come about if, um, if that, can you, can you speak to, to, can you speak to kind of, um, the, um, uh, the direction that you were coming from in, in the first episode when you were talking about telling Bryson's story. And, um, you know, I, I was particularly moved by that. Um, and, and kind of what you said, you know, it's, um, it's something that I, I maybe didn't realize when I first went into this project that there are a bunch of ethical questions around this. So, you know, even the fact that when I talk about cure, that's, that can be a controversial term in disability circles, right? Mm. And so I dedicated a whole episode to kind of getting into the ethics of this journey that I'm on and exploring the word cure and um, even, you know, gene editing and the fact that that worries some people because it could be a, a form of eugenics and, and all of that, uh, you know, mm. we deal with in a later episode. But um, I was going to ask you about CRISPR as well. So that's, uh, so mm. that's uh, <laughs> very interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, yeah. So we we can talk about that, but but I would say you know, and right at the start, it's that uh, Bryson doesn't have a voice. I wish that he did. Um, so I want him to know that. And, and there's a part in the podcast where I, I talk to him about the fact that um, I talk about cure a lot, 
and I'm not using the word cure because I think he needs to be fixed because I, I think there's anything wrong with him. It's because I want his life to be easier. And mm. I feel like if by telling his story, we can make his life easier, then I hope that he would agree that I'm making the right decision uh, to mm. do that. Is your, is your background in journalism? It is. Yeah. Is yeah. was there, was, is there some kind of like, uh, did you have some sort of like debate ethically on like due to your background, you know, like uh, approaching the story, the way that you were approaching it, was there, was there something like, is there something in the rule of ethics of journalism that, that made you take, take a moment to like step back and, and question whether or not what you were doing is, was like the right, the right, right way to go about it? I honestly never thought about it from a journalism perspective. Uh, mm. so I worked as a reporter, uh, mostly at the Globe and Mail, uh, for about a decade. Uh, but that was a while ago. So since then I've been doing a bunch of other things. Um, and so this is actually kind of, you know, me, me returning to journalism after a while. Uh, right. so yeah, no, I hadn't, hadn't thought about it from that point. You, you mentioned there too, about the, the ethics or the, or the, the rather the controversy surrounding, um, surrounding a cure or the idea of a cure yeah. when it comes to like intellectual disabilities. Um, for, for some of our listeners who might not be aware of, of why that statement is, is controversial, especially within that community. Could you, could you kind of like lay that out for, for our listeners? Yeah. And, and I would say that I think probably when it comes to physical disabilities, it's even maybe even more, um, pronounced, because, sure. you know, so, so there'll be people in a wheelchair um, that can get around by themselves, but they say that people around them assume that they would rather be able to walk, that they should want to have a cure. But people will say, no, this is who I am. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be who I am now if I were someone who, who could walk. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- that extends, obviously, to, to intellectual disabilities as well. So um, I talked to a couple of disability rights experts and and bioethicists uh later in the podcast to kind of talk through some of these issues. Cool. And going on the going on the conversation around <clears throat> around CRISPR and, and gene editing um and a, a really big and complicated uh conversation and um uh debate I guess that's that has that has been had and is being had um is is when you have, if you have the capacity to know before a child is born that a child has you know, wh- any sort of uh, disability, physical, cognitive, whatever it is, um, and if you have the ability to change it, do you? And that, I mean, that's a, I know a massive can of worms. I'm interested in, in you know, because you because of your situation, I wonder what your perspective is on that. Yeah. And so, you know, there was an example of that in our community where um, in a Facebook group, there was a mom who posted not about her own child, but on behalf of another mom who had she'd come in contact with, who um, in some kind of prenatal screening showed that her child had a, a grin variant. And so this other mom was coming to the community and asking, like, what um, does anybody know about this particular variant and what the mom should should expect and um, that was tough for me because it it did feel like because because this mom was making the decision about whether to go through with a pregnancy or right. whether to have an abortion. Oh wow! And and so you know that that did feel uh, hard because it felt like someone was making a judgment on my son. But at the same time, that's probably the right thing to do, right? Like so, um, 
off one of the things I talk about uh, again in the podcast is like with Down syndrome kids where parents find out that their kids have Down syndrome, um, they're not typically given the chance to talk to parents of Down syndrome kids or to meet with Down syndrome kids before they make that decision about whether to have their child. And um, that's probably the right ethical thing to do is to, to really fully go into it, um, mm. knowing what life will be like as a, as a parent of, of someone with Down syndrome or with Grin. So um, it's, it's a complicated question, but uh, it's yeah, down, definitely. The Down syndrome thing is really interesting too, because, um, you know, culturally around the world, it's, it's very different depending on where you live. Um, like, for example, in Iceland, there are almost um, zero um, people living with Down syndrome because- wow the common practice in Iceland is that if they detect it uh, in the gene screening pre-birth, they terminate the pregnancy. And I know that there's been a lot of um, advocates from the Down syndrome community who have been traveling to Iceland to, um, you know, show the people there that you can live a full and healthy life with Down syndrome. But then it's also, you know, there's so many different facets to the debate because, there's the um, religious element that can be brought into it as well. So, you know, like it, it's it is it's so really tough to it, it's so complicated to understand and and yeah. But I, I really, I but I really like your take on that, difficult. Keith. That 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 is the right thing to do. That like you should you should to have the access to have the conversations and to and mm. to to kind of to enrich yourself with all the information because the, the awareness, yeah, yeah, the awareness around it. Um, well, it's, and if I mean, you at have, the end of the day, I guess it's, I mean, choice is choice. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, we live in a world where we really prioritize the ability to choose basically whatever you do. Um, and, and equipping yourself with the information, I guess, is the, is, is the number one. And that's all, that's all mm-hmm. you can, you can really do and argue about, I guess, really. Absolutely. I guess in my, in, from my standpoint, um, I, 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 I feel so I'm I'm completely fucking exhausted and in, in terms of talking about COVID-19 um because that's all I hear and all we're talking about ever. Uh however, I do I am very I am very much uh curious to know what what that looks like for a family like yourself, someone who has a, a child who's living with with a disability. Um you know, it's it's one thing for like the three of us sitting at home, uh, kind of doing our thing. We don't have kids We're you know, I like I'm, I'm having a ball over here. Just, just <laughs> hunkered down, playing video games, you know, drinking beer and snuggling my dog. Uh, but what, what have, what have things been like? Um, how have things changed for you guys? You know, like it, we, I, we kind of touched on it before we started recording, but you mm-hmm. were, you were mentioning how, how Bryson, you know, he's, he's a little bit frustrated or, or sad that he's not, he's not going to school, which is something that he obviously really enjoys doing, uh, every week. Um, so, so what, what's life like now in, in the midst of a pandemic? Yeah, well, we've been taking, you know, the social distancing very seriously right from the start. And it's partly because of Bryson. So grin disorder is not usually a fatal disease, but people have died from it. And usually when they die, it's because they have, uh, because low muscle tone also causes respiratory issues. So mm-hmm. something like COVID-19, obviously very, very scary for us as it would be for you, Jeremy. Um, yeah. and, and, um, 
the other reason is that I've, I had a kidney transplant a few years ago. And so, you know, even before um, the lockdown here, I was reading about Italy and reading these stories about how they were having to prioritize who got ventilators and people who had transplants were not on the list and they were kind of being left to die. So Whoa. that scared me. And, uh, and obviously we were scared for Bryson. So we've taken it super seriously. Um, luckily, I work from home anyway. My wife, Laura, has been able to work from home um, it's been tough because we get, you know, this support, as I mentioned, the support, uh, we've just said, we don't want people coming in into our home. So, um, Bryson's caregiver, Edna, uh, her as well, she was sick. So we were worried that maybe she had it. So for about two and a half weeks, she wasn't coming. So luckily Connor was able to be a huge help with Bryson while, uh, Laura and I were, were working. Um, but, but we, you know, we live in a neighborhood where we can go for walks and still keep our distance from people. Um, so it's good to get Bryson outside. He likes that. Um, and, and I would say that overall we were worried about how tough it would be for him, but for the most part, it's been better than, than we expected. He's mostly been pretty happy. Mm, yeah, that's good to hear. Um, one of the things I wanted to come back to, uh, before we start to wrap this podcast up was, was, uh, uh, something that I hadn't thought of much before this conversation today and actually listening to the first episode of Unlocking Bryson's Brain, uh, which is the role of the caregiver advocate. I know we've talked so much about how important it is to be a patient advocate, but I didn't think so much about what that would mean for somebody who didn't have a voice to speak for themselves. So you talked about how the ethics of like telling Bryson's story, but also at the start of this conversation today, we we did reference how this is... Unlocking Bryson's brain is really a memoir of of uh, a dad to of you. Um, what? How? How can you be an, uh, a good caregiver advocate? Hmm, that's I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I hope that. I, I think one of the things that I wrestled with too in telling the story was that um, you know I started I go I went into it thinking that of course it's about Bryson but it's also my experience with Bryson. And then as I went through it more and more, I realized that, um, you know, it shouldn't just be about my experience, like as much as possible. I want, I want this to be about Bryson's experience. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's a very, very good answer. I guess, um, I guess, uh, more so is, is what Brian, is that not a good enough answer for you? Yeah, I guess the question, (laughs) and maybe that wasn't the right question that I was trying to ask. Maybe I was trying to, to, to get more to like um, the importance of of what it means to be a caregiver advocate and how important it is because like a, uh, for example we had another conversation recently about uh, environmental racism and you know as as three young white guys having a conversation um, about environmental racism it's hard to put yourselves in the shoes of the people who are really experiencing. Um, the marginalization. Um, so I, I'm, I'm trying to think about like the importance of like advocating on people who don't have a voice to advocate for themselves. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering like what that experience has taught you, uh, or if there's any, you know, insight you can give, uh, the listeners and us who maybe haven't really thought about some of these situations before. Well, I mean, I would say that that we're actually lucky in in our situation because um, you know we're able to have this caregiver come into our house. We're able to have a wheelchair accessible car so we can get around with Bryson. 
Um, and even, you know, we were able to get this genetic test to get his diagnosis. I think that if you look, and especially, you know, in the US, if you look at who's getting the diagnosis, it's probably going to be more affluent families uh, who have had, you know, where they're, they have the insurance that's going to pay for that that test that's going to get the results and people who are just re- relying on the public health system in the US aren't going to get that diagnosis. So, I mean, I, I can I can speak to my own example, but I know that there are others that have it um, much harder than we do that mm-hmm. have to get their kids around to doctor's appointments on the bus and, um, you know, the, uh, other things. So, so it, it is it is hard. It takes a, a financial toll as well as the emotional toll for sure. What was the uh, what was the relief like getting a diagnosis, hmm. or was it a sense of relief? I, I, I'm I'm making the assumption that it is because I know how hard it can be to go years and years and years. I mean, I know I know from our experience of doing this podcast how hard it can be for years and years not knowing what you're dealing with and what the outcome or the possible outcomes can be. So, what was it like to receive the diagnosis? It was amazing. It it really did change our lives in all kinds of ways. So the first was just um, finding a community. So once we knew what the disease was, mm. we were able to connect with other families. And that provides emotional support, but it also kind of provides clues in terms of how to do a better job of caretaking with Bryson because parents you know, exchange experiences. And um, so that was really helpful because this is a disease that the doctors don't really know about. And talking to other parents, you can learn a lot more. Another big way was particular to my wife, Laura. So there's a lot of um, pressure on women to kind of be perfect during pregnancy. And so, you know, Laura thought she was doing everything the right way. She wasn't smoking or drinking or, you know, eating lunch and meats or all the things that they say pregnant women aren't, aren't supposed to do. And, um, and then Bryson was still born with this condition so she always carried this guilt until we got the diagnosis that maybe it was her fault, that it was something that she had done during pregnancy. Um, and of course it wasn't right that she, um, so, so getting the diagnosis and learning that it was something that was a de novo spontaneous mutation that could happen to anyone, um, really freed her feeling like it was her fault. Mm-hmm. I, uh, <laughs> the one of the, th- another thing that struck me from that first episode was the, uh, when you mentioned, uh, people asking the question of if you guys were re- related and oh that you said that that's not, not uncommon for people who have, um, kids who are born with genetic disorders or intellectual disabilities or whatever it's, <laughs> it, I just found that to be, again, something that I hadn't thought of before, but you know, I could understand how, it was a How really weird great that like, would be. <laughs> point of comic relief to like yeah. the, where you and your wife are are like, holy, holy shit, wait, could we be? Yeah. <laughs> like, is it yeah. is this like, is this yeah. possible? Yeah, yeah. Oh, because I, because of course uh, genetic diseases are more common if the the parents are related because you know you're you're putting together um, potentially broken genes. Or did or, you actually or did you have to take any genetic testing to 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 say like we definitely are not. Uh, we did not have to do that. No. I mean, we were, it was, it was more of just like a moment of like, wait, could we? No, no, we're not, we're not related. <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Keith, I, I just, I have to say this has been, uh, it's been a real honor to sit down and, and, uh, chat with you and, and get a little bit more insight into, uh, the life of, of a caregiver, uh, like yourself. And, um, I, I again cannot 
cannot recommend enough. Um, uh, Unlocking Bryson's Brain. It is. It is a. Uh, really just a wonderful, wonderful podcast, at least what we've heard so far. And uh, it dropped last week. So the first two episodes dropped on the on the 14th. I think, uh, is it is it weekly releases from weekly, here on out? Yep, that's right. Uh, okay, so if you're listening to this as we drop this, tomorrow uh, you'll, you'll get a new episode in your feed there. It's a CBC podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, please go, go take a listen. And like we ask you to do with our show, uh, leave a rating and a review and hit the subscribe button because it's a story that you're not going to want to miss week, week by week. Um, Keith, thank you so much for, for taking the time to hang out with us today. And it was really, really a pleasure to get to know you. Thanks, guys. This was fun. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, like we say every week, go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, hit the subscribe button. And uh, if you want to support us in other ways, you can go to our Patreon, right, Tay? You can go over to patreon.com slash sickboy. We are just chuffed to bits uh, with our patrons the last uh, last little bit. That's a little British saying. If you didn't chuffed pick up, to bits. If you didn't uh, pick up on that one. And Cheerio. Cheerio, mate. my little matey. And uh, patreon.com slash sickboy. We love all of you and you've been coming together uh, in a way that we couldn't have imagined. Um, we love you all patrons. Patreon.com slash sickboy. And thanks to Donovan, the CPAP Morgan for the amazing sound design on the show. Donovan, uh, it wouldn't be possible without you for us to sound as good as we do. Thanks for cutting out all of the mistakes and things that we said that didn't totally make sense. Um, and also, thanks for making it sound like we are inside of Bryson's brain right now. Um, and oh. if you're wondering what that sounds like, it sounds like this right now. That sounded just like it would sound like in anyone else's brain. <laughs> just, the in, just the inside of someone's head. Uh, that is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sydney. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.